Okay. All right, here we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third installment of the syllabus series on the Year Zero podcast with Wesley Yang. Today, we will be back with Boston College Professor of Political Science, uh, Shep Melnick, talking about a very uh, interesting essay by a scholar named Hugh Heeklow called The 60s False Dawn, Awakening Movements and Postmodern Policymaking. It's a short and quite uh, ingenious essay f- full of very interesting apothems throughout. Uh, and I hope maybe to not just go over the argument and to frame it within a broader context, but also to zoom in on some of the very interesting, large generalizations and synthetic judgments that uh, that can constitute the bulk of the essay. Um, it seems like the germ of a larger work. I don't know if it ever became a book, but there are enough ideas within it to to launch a whole literature in itself. So uh, I guess we should begin. If um, Professor Melnick can begin by briefly summarizing the argument of the essay and framing it within the discussion of which it's a part. Okay. Sure. If it'd be okay, Wesley, I'd like to start with just a word about who Hugh Hecklow was. Hugh died a couple of years ago at a relatively young age in his early 70s. Um, he was one of the great political scientists of his generation, but I don't think he's very widely known outside political science. He was at Brookings. Um, he was at Harvard. Um, he had the the good sense, I think, to um, leave Harvard, uh, leave a tenured position there after only a few years to go to George Mason so he could return to his farm in Virginia. He was a person of great integrity. And what I'd point out, and this really comes out in this article, is that he was interested in two things that usually don't go together. One is public administration and public policy. His first book was called A Government of Strangers about political executives in Washington. The other thing they was interested in is religion. And unlike most uh, modern scholars, he was a religious person. But he didn't, he brought his interest in religion to his writing, but he didn't bring his own particular religion in to his writing. But what you see in this article is his interest in uh, the way in which what he calls the Great Awakening of the 1960s, which he discusses really in a very interesting but pretty abstract way, and his how this changed the policymaking process. So you see those two things coming together in, I think, a very productive way. To quickly summarize the article, and I'll first say that this article appeared in a relatively obscure journal called the Journal of Policy History in 1996. So this is almost 30 years old. But what I think is remarkable is how well it describes things that are going on in American politics today. So what's the argument? Um, it is that in the 1960s, there was a cultural revolution which was, in an important way, spiritual. It was a seeking for broader meaning, for personal redemption, a a seeking of new ways of giving meaning to life that that infused into politics as well. And Heckler points out that this was very similar to the previous three great religious awakenings 
in American politics, American history. The early 1700s, the early 1800s, the late 1800s and early 1900s. So this is a recurring theme of this, this search for meaning and in the other great awakenings, a return to fundamental truths, um, a purification of both social and uh, individual by going back to the most fundamental principles, usually of, religi of religious principles. Um, and what Heckler shows how the 1960s uh, was a very similar to this with one huge, huge difference, which was that it was not religious, that it was spiritual, it was seeking for redemption, but without a sense that, that there were religious truths. As a matter of fact, without the sense that there were truths at all, that this is a postmodern, to use the term he, he applies a postmodern revival, which is an oxymoron because it really wasn't a revival because there was nothing to go back to, but that he thinks was the essential cultural change of this period. And what I, the reason I think it is so relevant today is because I think the, the great awakening today, the creation of the successor ideology, is in some ways a radicalization of the radical cultural shift that Hecklow describes. Because in the 19... 60s, even the new left was saying we have returned to fundamental American principles of all men are created equal, and we have to expand that to include women and, and, and people of uh, various ethnicities and races. Um, and Martin Luther King obviously, you know, spoke eloquently about returning to the Declaration of Independence. But today, we don't have any sense of return because the Declaration, the Constitution, the entire nation are inherently racist. So there's nothing to return to. And then the question becomes, I mean, what, what Heckler shows is that there was a radical relativism in this 60s revolution, cultural revolution, and even more so today, an even more radical relativism where there is no grounding of anything. But that is combined with an amazing absolutism in political enthusiasms that we know what social justice is so that there's a radicalization of what he saw and the other part i said just kind of uh, wrap up with this was he said he saw the way in which this got translated into political action and this was uh, I'll, I'll just read something that i think summers summarizes that he does better than i can he said the awakening of the 60s created a central paradox Institutional authority was challenged throughout American society at the same time as demands and expectations on government were multiplied. For a great many activists, the federal government was part of the establishment that had to be attacked, and yet it was also the resource that lay most readily at hand to pursue the social reformation urged by the New Light movement. So, and we see that today, that government is not to be trusted. Government is always oppressive. Government is always the tool of the powerful over the powerless. But what's the answer to this? Give more power to centralized government to reduce inequality. And Heckler shows that the, in the 1960s, in the 1970s, the answer was give more power to government, but have lots and lots of ways in which the new activists can oversee, criticize, and, and challenge whatever government 
does. And that is the that was definitely the the way in which policy developed in the 1960s and 70s. And that's what really Robert Kagan and adversarial legalism described. How do you put together these two contradictory things? So Hecklow, I think, provides a deeper understanding of the forces that produce the adversarial legalism that we talked about in the last session. Right. Uh, Adversarial legalism was held to be an outgrowth of really the same combination of things, of uh, a new set of demands on government at the same time Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, that one began to distrust it to a much greater degree. At the same time, a rights-based approach to politics that necessarily entailed a nationalization of every issue, because rights are supposed to belong to everyone everywhere, and the entity that is the protector of that is going to be the national government. So there's on the one hand a kind of nationalization of politics, and I think as Hiklo points out, a delegitimization of the American mythos and of the American nation state going on simultaneously to one another, demonstrating that this phenomenon that's happening at the level of the agencies is actually rooted at a deeper level in in, in an alteration of a kind of national consciousness that the new activist sensibility was bringing to the, to, to, to the fore. Right. Yeah, I think it's very well put. And you could... You could say, and this is an argument that Kagan makes, is that there's some element of this has always been true in American politics, that Americans are ideologically conservative, but operationally liberal, the the famous uh, formulation. They like all of these new programs and protections, but they don't trust government. So, you know, that's, I think that's a healthy um, tension within American politics, but it became radicalized in the 60s and 70s, and even more so today. And if you want a personification of this, I would choose Ralph Nader, Um, because Nader was in favor of a much more extensive regulation. We owe automobile safety regulation to Ralph Nader. It's been a tremendous success. Our cars are much safer now, and we can thank Ralph Nader for that. But he also, as soon as as the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration was created, he started attacking it. And then when Jimmy Carter put his lieutenant, Joan Claiborne, in charge, he started attacking her. So the the strategy is to, if you want to build a program, you want to attack the program. And that creates enormous distrust. And, you know, obviously that, to some extent, that fed the new form of conservatism. That was, I think, often virulently anti-government, despite the fact that they were afraid to challenge many of the programs that people liked so much. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, that this this um, uh, huge tension between these two features of American political culture have been radicalized. I think we're at the heart of so much of our partisan politics as well. So Nader was a non-governmental actor and an activist who mm-hmm. built out the apparatus that we now have that we have sort of outsourced much of the policy making and oversight process to? Uh, on the first part, I agree. I might qualify the second part. Ralph Nader, for those who don't remember him, and probably most people don't remember anything other than helping throw the 2000 election to George W. Bush, was the, uh, was the original consumer advocate he was extremely good at using the media to get attention to issues. 
He started a large number of organizations that were initially called Nader's Raiders that focused on environmental issues, consumer mm -hmm. issues, traffic safety issues, all kinds of issues. Really be, was the kind of the godfather of a new breed of activists, many of whom were very, very capable people. But the the strategy was that you got attention by demonizing the opposition. Mm -hmm. And you could demonize the opposition most readily when they were general motors and doing unethical things. But then you would demonize the regulators as well. Um, and especially that uh, when when you have divided government, when you have Republicans running uh, the, in the White House and Democrats in Congress, then it's easy to enlist the Democrats in attacking how, what administrators are doing, sometimes with good reason. And uh, I, I think that we have too little congressional oversight now, but it was uh, kind of uh, at times attacking them no matter what they did and not considering the, the practical obstacles to more mm. effective regulation. Right. So how crucial a figure was he in the building out of the sort of the, the activist nonprofit industrial complex? Mm -hmm. I, he was extraordinarily important, both in founding these new, new organizations and helping teach about various types of advocacy techniques, partly with the media, but also with litigation. If you look at important court cases involving various forms of regulation and of entitlement spending in the 1970s and 80s, it was extremely important of expanding government programs. And many of those were either alumni of the Natives Radius programs or people who had learned from them. And so if you look at the entire public interest movement, um, you would say, who was, who was, who were the crucial figures? I'd say, number one, the NAACP showing the strategies that led to Brown and many other victories. But then the Nader groups would probably be a close second to that. And so the, uh, and then we see a counter mobilization on the right using similar tactics, making reference to contrary values, but really engaging in the same style and sensibility of politics. Right. So you mentioned the importance of, of rights talk. Um, and you mentioned um, the way in which it tends to the nationalization of politics. It also leads to, to a more impassioned politics because you can bargain over budgets. You can't bargain over rights. So to put things in terms of rights had a huge effect on American politics, nationalization, and, and the kind of impassioned nature of politics. But uh, get back to the point you just made. The right realized that there are important rights to them as well. The right to life, the right to property, the right to your guns. So all of these things could be put in those terms now. And we're seeing some of the consequences of that it, with uh, Supreme Court decisions. So we might get a, a gun rights decision coming up, probably the hottest issue in American politics today. The right to be left alone, that's in some way was the challenge to Obamacare. We don't want to be told to eat our broccoli in the extreme of that. But even more to your point, um, the way in which Republicans adopted this severe don't trust mm. the government attitude. You know, you can see that in the anti-mask stuff, the anti-vax uh, stuff. And just as the anti-vax stuff had been as common on the left as on the mm. right. And that, that distrust of expertise, distrust of government and centralized authority um, is, was most pronounced on the left in the 1960s and 70s, and now it's very pronounced on the right.
Hi, this is Wesley Yang. You're listening to the Syllabus Series, part of the Year Zero podcast, wherein I do a deep dive into an academic subject, guided by an expert who will provide me with a reading list and work with me through it over the coming weeks and months. You're listening to an abridged version of a longer conversation. If you want to listen to the whole episode, which is for paid subscribers only, you have to visit my Substack, which is my home base for both my writing and podcasting endeavors. WesleyYang.substack.com, where you'll be able to subscribe to a package of writings by myself, outside contributors, and what promises to be a large archive of conversations with a range of academic experts on a range of different subjects. That's WesleyYang.substack.com.